0: Hey, everybody. It's Michael Schellenberger for Public. Today, I'm very excited to be joined by Monica Harris, a new friend of mine and the executive director of a really special organization called Foundation Against Intolerance and Racism. Monica is uh, the incoming executive director. She's only been there for a few weeks. She received her bachelor's from Princeton and her law degree from Harvard Law School, where she served as an editor of the Harvard Law Review. Same class as Barack Obama. That's right. <laughs> and she's here <laughs> with me, as you can tell.
1: <laughs> supposed
0: to let me, we can't wait, we're just like, let me get through the whole intro. Okay, yeah, Monica's this, here, Spoil the surprise. All right. um, uh, uh, Monica worked uh, for a while in the entertainment industry. And then in 2011, she abandoned corporate life and moved with her family to Montana. She currently operates what well, she did before uh, FAIR. I'm not sure if you still are. We'll talk I about it. I still do it. it. Um, I still
1: get yeah, FAIR. FAIR doesn't okay. pay the bills. So, you know, I, I need to okay. help. Okay.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Big Sky is her firm. Um, she wrote a really uh, lovely book ar- uh, called The Illusion of Division, which came out in 2022. And the book argues that we're not as divided as it may seem on a whole set of issues, both racial and political and other issues. And we've allowed ourselves to be pushed into extremes and that we need to get back to some common ground, mutual understanding to some basic humanity. And one of the things I really like about Monica and really appreciate about FAIR is its commitment to a pro-human vision which is a, a mission that that Monica and fair have had um, independently of my own advocacy for a pro-human environmentalism which is the the way I describe it and so you can see there's a lot of alignment here an effort for us to try to uh, appreciate each other as yeah. human beings and all of our complexity and um, not get sort of swept up in these, these Maniquean extremes. So anyway, without further ado, Monica Harris, thank you for for talking with me today.
1: Oh brother. It's such a pleasure to be here. I'm totally honored. I've been jazzed for this for the past week.
0: Ah. Amazing. (laughs) This is our, we've, so we've only really, you and I have only really had, it's like, I think our fourth Hmm. interaction. I think we've, we met at the um, Freedom, Freedom Fest, Fest, Freedom
1: Fest in, in Memphis last summer. Yeah. And you
0: gave me your book. and I was um, bold.
1: I just walked right up to you and I just introduced myself. <laughs> you, know, I, you know, my partner was like, he's going to think you're crazy. I mean, you know, like, who are you? He's Michael Schellenberg. Like, he's like, all these random people are coming up to him. Why would he even, like, pay attention to you? But we connected. Was- I mean-
0: I don't it know. was absolutely, yeah, for sure. I think we're a similar sensibility and similar values, yeah. Um, and then, and then that was before. Then you you accepted this position at Fair, which we want to talk about, yeah, when we yeah get yeah. into. But well, where should we start? I mean, I, there's a lot of different places I could think of starting. Oh. I mean, I want to start with you know, um, we can start with your book. We can also start with kind of who you are and where you come from. Um, I think the story of certainly you, you moving to Montana seems like an important existential moment in your life. So yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I I like to start off by telling people that I was the poster child for the American dream. I mean, I just to give you some context. So I was I'm a, I'm a Gen Xer, uh, born in '66, and born not too far from where the Watts riots broke out in South, South Central Los Angeles. So my parents worked for the county. My mother was a child support representative. She went after deadbeat dads. My father was an LA County sheriff at a time when there just weren't a lot of black cops in the, um, in, in the department. And they, they were like solidly working class. You know, they went into debt to send me to a prep school. And my father always used to tell me um, that, you know, the only reason I sacrificed to send you to prep school is because I could see that you like to read, you were kind of smart. And I figured, you know what, I need to nurture this. I need, I need, I need to make the best of it. Um, but I, I went to school with a lot of super, super, I mean, really privileged people. Um, not, not some imaginary uh, privilege. I mean, these were really wealthy kids in Pasadena. And I think it was being in that milieu that sort of gave me this thirst, this this sense of like, oh my God, anything is possible. I mean, Martin mm. Luther King, the Civil Rights Movement, we've got affirmative action going. I can I can break in and I can move to a higher level than my parents ever dreamed. And I think I mean, I'm, I'm not even think. I'm sure I exceeded my parents' expectations. And their wildest dreams, they were like, maybe she'll go to UCLA, but I went to this prep school, and I'm like, no, 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 UCLA, no, nah, no, nah, nah, I'm looking, I'm looking. I'm looking beyond that. I'm thinking Ivy League. Mm. So I just set myself on this track. I was super hard worker. I was type A. Um, So I went to Princeton, the Woodrow Wilson School of International Relations, which has since been renamed because Woodrow Wilson was a a racist.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I will, sure.
1: (laughs) Now it's just the Princeton School of uh, Public Relations and International Mm. Affairs. Um, Mm. And went to Harvard Law School. Uh, So I was on a path. And when I got out of Harvard Law School, I became an entertainment lawyer uh, because I, I love film and television. So for the next, I would say 15, 16 years, I was working at Walt Disney Television, NBC Universal, uh, Viacom. In fact, I, had, I started the business and legal affairs department for VH1 on the West Coast. Viacom's a, it's a New mm-hmm. York based company, but I like started that, that, that division. Ah. Um. So it's a big deal. And you should
0: tell you should tell listeners what VH1 is because oh all, my god, no,
1: am I that old that people don't know what VH1 is?
0: <laughs> no. or yeah, or they just may not be hip enough. We'll see. Oh, I don't know. or
1: not hip enough, right?
0: VH1 was uh, it was a MTV spinoff.
1: Right? Well, yeah, it was part of the MTV network uh, suite. It stands for, or it's, it's still around. Okay, Video Hits One, and it was like you know, the, um, MTV was doing the sort of like, um, the rock, um, rock videos you know, not really. I think it started off with like Michael Jackson. Michael Jackson's Thriller was one of the first videos, um, music videos. But anyway, so VH1 was sort of a soft pop rock videos. You know, we did the stuff that was more tame. But by the time I got there, it had morphed into reality television, you know, that sort of sick, depraved. I was working on Flavor of Love, you know, um, a bunch of a bunch of reality shows where, and I'm not proud to say this, I mean it showed black people. They're <laughs> just absolute worst, you know, hoochie mamas, uh, strippers. Uh. It was just, it was, it was degrading, and that's that's another story mm-hmm. I could get into. Mm-hmm. But so I was doing this, and I was making what I like to call good money, you know, fairly fairly high six figure yeah. salary. But the weirdest thing was, and as I say this now, I know it sounds totally crazy, I was barely making ends meet. <laughs> I mean, it was it's expensive to be rich, isn't it? Oh, no, 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 no. I wasn't. I was a, no, 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 no. I was a, I, no, no. See, this is the thing. I was a three percenter, not a one percenter. I mean, I actually calculated this. I was a three percenter, and we were. And I had a lot of student loans. I mean, I just have to say that too. But it's it was really expensive living in Southern California then, and it still is. Um, and we, you know, we weren't like driving new cars. I had a Jetta. My partner had like a, a Suzu Trooper. Uh, we adopted our son. That took money to send him to a Montessori school. We ate organic. I mean, we did all of the things that people who were, you know, like I was a senior executive at a, at, a, at a media company. I was living that lifestyle, but I literally had no savings. Every other week, I would look at my bank account and I'm like, oh my God, I just got paid. Where's this money going? So that was sort of a wake up call for me because I began to think, all right, hold on. I know I'm not being really like profligate here, but if I'm having trouble saving money, what does this mean for people who aren't making the kind of money I am? Who you know, so that sort of got me thinking. Mm-hmm. And I also started to notice as when I would drive through, you know, LA on my way to work, like more businesses were shuttering, even though like I, you know, on CNBC I'd hear, oh, the economy's booming. And I'm thinking, the economy is zooming. Why, why are, why are businesses shutting? Wait, that business was, what is,
0: are this is oh. in the 20, this is early 2010. Yes. Or where are we Thank
1: you. 2010. All right. So I'll, I'll, I'll fix, I'll fix you there in time. It's 2010. Yeah. So this is like a long time. I think before people really realized that the economy was going downhill and I was noticing more homeless people, um, which was, hmm. you know, it, it, people take for granted now that there's a lot of homeless in LA, but 15 years ago, it really wasn't a thing. And, um, I talked to my friends, my colleagues um, at VH1, and I'm like, God, have you noticed what's going on? But it wasn't happening west of the four or five freeway, you know, San Vicente, all those places, you know, San Vicente, right? Going into Beverly Hills. And
0: the nice. Yeah. The nicer part of LA. The nicer yeah.
1: part was looking good. And these people, yeah. their, their feeling was my world is fine. My bubble's fine. What are you talking about, Monica? Um, so there was some, I, I like to call it a sort of cognitive dissonance that was going on. I write about that in my book, that there was this, this way the world was presented to us and the, the reality that I was starting to appreciate in my own life. And then there was like the, the obvious identity politics. I'm gay, mm-hmm. I'm black, I'm in Hollywood. There's a certain way gay black women are supposed to think in Hollywood. We're supposed to be Democrats, we're supposed to be, you know, protesting, the you know, the things that need to be protested, um, you know, against abortion, everything like that. And, uh, you know, I, I think I fell into that. I'm not going to call it a trap, but, you know, I did what was expected of me. And, um, but I, I would say the pivotal moment, you call it the existential turning point for me, was the year our son was born. My partner was invited to a family reunion in southeastern Montana. And she says, hey, babe, would you ever, would you want to go? And, and I don't know about you, but Montana was one of these places that had always been on my bucket list. It's Big Sky, you know. It's yeah. yeah, right? So I said, sure, let's go. And we were there for a week, and it was just, I think it was life-changing because it was the first time there was no Wi-Fi reception. We were in this little town by a lake, no Wi-Fi. In fact, if you wanted to make a phone call, you had to go to this, like, two-by-two-foot-square patch somewhere near the lodge. And it was just, it was ridiculous. So we were literally cut off from the world and I was forced to go inward and just absorb unparalleled beauty. And I think it did something to me, Michael. And I don't think, I mean, I've been on vacation so many times before, but I was like at the destination resorts, that kind of, kind of place where, you know, you're just, you're getting your massages, you know, you've, it's, you've got the wonderful, you know, buffets and stuff like that. But this is, we were hunting. I mean, we were fishing, we weren't hunting. And we were like just eating simple meals and gathering around the fire and hiking. And we were just, I don't know, it was just a really simple way of, um, of moving through the world for a week. And after the vacation was over, we were driving back to California. I asked my partner, what would you think about exploring the rest of Montana? Instead of going back to LA through Idaho and Salt Lake City, And Nevada. What if we just went straight across the state, headed west, went to Oregon, and dropped down? And she said, "Sure." I mean, she's kind of adventurous. So, Michael, we're we're driving through um, we're driving through Western Montana, Eastern Montana, and I'm thinking um, we're passing all these little towns, and I'm wondering, God, I wonder what that town's like. I mean, they're just these little specks in the middle of nowhere. These 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 towns where you see like population two thousand or two hundred, and you're like. What's that about? So you know, we got off at one of them, um, got off to got off an, an off ramp, tur- tur- got uh, turned into one. I can't remember what what uh, what town it was now, but they were holding uh, a chili a chili cookoff, and I thought, my God, a chili cook-off in Montana! What's that about? What would that even be like? So we're like creeping through town. We get out. We're the there's no black people to be found. I mean, none. Just Guys, white guys, and pickup trucks with the shotguns in the back and the the big cowboy hats and the boots and women looking like you know just kind of from thirty or forty years ago. I mean, it was it was it was kind of interesting, and I think my partner and I were a little like, "Was this the right decision? Should we have actually made this turnoff?" So we walk up to the woman who's like selling the tickets to the ch- cook off, and I'm bracing myself because I'm like, "I don't know what she's going to be like." And she looks at us and she says, "Y'all here for the cook-off?" I'm like, "Yeah, we are." Well, get yourself a ticket. You know, settle on in. You're going to have lots of fun. I mean, it was like something out of a movie. Um, <laughs> it, 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 it was great, and we spent like a couple of hours there. And weren't we
0: just like, "Why are they being so nice?" Yes, to us? there's something wrong with these people.
1: <laughs> yes, you're like because you expect. I mean, there's a part of me. I was really curious. That's why we got. That's why I wanted to check it out. But there was a part of me that was kind of afraid. I mean, you see a lot of white guys. With guns in their trucks, and you're thinking, "Was this the right move?" And you know, is 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 this was this is this? Am I going to be a statistic? Is is someone going to jump out at us as we're walking back to our car? Everything was fine, and that was that was the first shift in my thinking. The first um, clue I got that, "Huh, this isn't what I expected. I wonder what else isn't what I expect." So then Mm. we spent the night in Missoula, which is a college town, and which is actually where we we live now, and we stayed at. Goldsmith's Bed and Breakfast, which is a gay Jewish bed and breakfast on the Clark River, and I mean, if someone had asked me a few years before I went there, "Do you think that there are gay Jewish bed and breakfasts in Montana?" I would have said, "What are you smoking? I just can't be." But not only is it there, but it's thriving. It was bustling, um, and we just we spent the next day just kind of milling around Missoula. And I remember sitting in a restaurant with my partner, thinking, "God, this is just." This is so freaky. This is a red state. This is a flyover state. This is a place I never would have come, and Mm. it's like normal, you know. Like it was, and I just kind of screwed with my head. So anyway, long story short, we go back to to LA. I'm going on with my my life, but I can't get this vision, Mm. this memory, this experience of Montana Mm. out of my mind. It was like Neo in the Matrix. It was like this little splinter, and there was something in me that was just just pulling me, drawing me back there. I cannot even describe, but people who moved mm. here have since told me they feel the same pull. So uh, I guess I must be more persuasive than mm. I ever thought I could have been. I convinced my partner to liquidate everything and, and wow. buy a ranch in Montana a year later. And maybe Amazing. she just loves the hell out of me. I don't know, but, um, and oh, I, I, should, I should, yeah, I'm sorry.
0: Oh no! And your son? How was your son? How was your son? Because well, you had a child. Yes, you he's, had one son, right? Yes,
1: we adopted one son, um, one child, and he was about a year and a half when we went, went to um, move to Montana. So this is pretty okay. much all he knows. He's fourteen now. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um. But yeah, I, I think the, the 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 other weird thing was that when I uh, when I told my my friends, our family, and colleagues at VH1 that I was moving to V to uh, Montana, I mean, there were some people. It was a split, Michael. Like half the folks I talked to were like. Oh my God, that is so cool. I would love to leave LA. I would love to do that. But you know, my wife, my husband, yeah, i you know, I got all the stuff. And the other half were like, what the hell are you thinking? Are you crazy? I mean, one woman just flat out told me when I walked into her office, I'm like, hey, I'm moving to Montana. And she said, "Um, you do know that they're mostly Republicans there. In fact, I think they're all Republicans. And I hadn't really thought about the Republican angle of it. But I'm like, yeah, you know, you're right, they are. But they're cool, and it's beautiful, and it, there's, like, not a lot of traffic. I was, like, focused on all these other aspects of Montana, but mm-hmm. she was fixated on, you're gay, you're black, they're
0: Republican. This is not
1: going to work out well. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, anyway, that's, 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 I think, started me on my but it journey. But like
0: it sounds like the punchline, though, is that it, it has, because you're still there, and you seem like you still love it.
1: Oh, Dude. Not only do I love it, I cannot imagine living anywhere else in the country. It is, mm. it's where my heart is, it's where my soul is. And when we first moved here, I mean, I'll just be completely honest, it was not easy, but it wasn't not easy for the reasons people would think. It's just, we moved to a town with like 3,500 people. Um, Amazon was the way you shop. There's no mall, you know, if you, there's no Indian restaurants, there's no like sort of like, ethnic diversity for you know just cuisine and other things and you know if, if, if you want to buy new clothes you're going to go to spokane you're going to wait for that trip to la so i mean it's a real change in the way you move through the world but how far away are you from missoula now well okay you, so, you're in oh so yeah. you're
0: like outside of missoula. um
1: yeah. okay yeah we um
0: if you want Indian food, you have to drive to Missoula.
1: Exactly. And if we want really good Indian food, no offense to the folks <laughs> in Missoula, we got to go to Spokane, <laughs> which is
0: four no, hours okay. away
1: Okay, in Washington. Um, but yeah, we, we, uh, yeah it, it's, it's, it's been a real – it, um, it was a transition. It was a little difficult at first for that reason. And um, I should also add that when we first moved here, my partner was – she was missing. She had, a Calo- she had a California fix she had to get. So every year, twice a year, she had to get back to California. You know, I miss the ocean. I miss the shopping. I miss my friends. But the weirdest thing happened, and I would say it was about five years into our our relocation, she just lost the desire to go back to California as much. Hmm. And it would start like she would only go once a year and then maybe once every other year or maybe once every 18 months. And we would talk about it sometime and I'm like, why do you think you don't want to go to California as much? And she said, I think it's because I've changed and California's changed and we're moving in different directions, kind of like a relationship, you know? Yeah. And um, it got to the point that just before the pandemic, um, she told me, you know what? I just cannot even imagine living there again. And I said, because, you know, sometimes I'll just play with and I'm like, do you ever want to go back to California? She's over, de- over my dead body just, Mm. it's just not something she do. And since the pandemic, you know how the world's changed. And now she's like, Oh my God, I'm, I'm being buried on this property. You are not moving me.
0: (laughs) I mean, this is such a, it's such a, it's such an archetypal story in some ways, especially right now, Monica. I mean, I, I, you know, I, I, there's so much I pull out of it. I mean, I have so many questions too. I mean, um, where to begin? I want to ask about what it was like you're you know you you're a few years older than me than me but not much we're both Gen Xers and i think we both have a Gen X sensibility yeah. and i want to ask about growing up in the late 70s and 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 early 80s it sounds like you went to college in the like mid 80s yep um that's right and you know and, and also just kind of how you know, I mean, I, John, I, I, I would always sort of be like, you know, I think we had it right about kind of race and identity and a whole bunch of issues in the in the in the '80s and Uh-oh, '90s as Gen Xers. On. And then I go, well, that just I'm just being nostalgic, and that's just everybody says that. But then John McWhorter, you know, I think either wrote about it or talked about it in one of his books, which was kind of like we got to a place where it was actually in a good place, and then it and then it sort of all started again. I kind of go. Starts really as Clinton is leaving office. They do this, you know, oh, we have to talk about race in this sort of intense way that Mm -hmm. I think really prefigures a lot of the wokeism that we would see later. But so much of your story, I mean, it's a funny story because it's like what I pull out of it is like it's actually a story about intolerance in in the metropolitan coastal region and tolerance in the in the places that we're told are completely intolerant and it's exactly my experience i think the experience of a lot of us that were that are in blue cities and blue states and and our refugees and our maybe gen xers where it's like we actually like had this early experience maybe in Teenage years. I mean, I'm. Oh. Inter- I'd love to hear you t- talk to you about your high school and t- and call you know. There's some early tolerance and sort of a. I call it you know, uh, Breakfast Club.
1: Yeah. Culture. Yeah, know, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's
0: just a Breakfast Club culture, which is a kind of for those that don't know the, mo- the movie is a movie. Even though all the kids are white, it's actually kind of a parable of diversity, but not in the cr- in the horrible DEI way, but yeah. in sort of a gen uh, an actual genuine tolerance and humanity and shared humanity. And then we find ourselves sort of in our mid careers, mid lives, being like, "What is?" People have gone absolutely mad, yep. and they've become intolerant, um, obnoxious, um, scary, um, like walking on eggshells. Yeah. And and then you and then your moment. I mean, I never moved, but I moved in a different way. You know, had the same experience, which was like, "I don't want to be around." people that are like this that are so nasty and so superficial in some ways. And so hmm. anathema to the values that I think were the best values of the eighties and nineties, you know, Gen X breakfast club culture. I might be projecting no. onto you, but I'm curious to what extent, like what is it am I? is that landing for you and, and tell me about what you're, high school and college experience was in that period? Is it, is it just our nostalgia or, worth, or had we achieved a better place than, than where we ended up going?
1: So your question just confirms my belief that we're like, we're like soulmates or something because I believe I told you I was oh, – can you hear me? Yeah. Okay. I, I believe I, I've been, <laughs> I, I told you I was working on this piece, and um, it's taken me a little longer than I thought, but I'm going to get it to you. Um, because it speaks to exactly.
0: Can't wait to read it. Uh, yeah. yeah,
1: it's a lot. It's about being, Gen X. We are such a unique generation because we were like, we were like the generation that had parents from a segregated society, whether we were black or white. Our parents grew up in a segregated society, but we, we, especially the, you and me, were born sort of like at the beginning of Gen X we were like the, the transitional society. We were like moving from leaving segregation behind, moving into integration. And it happened at such an early point in our lives that it felt normal. It felt natural. We're like, this is the way it's supposed to be. It's, it was organic. Um, and I think that the fundamental schism we're seeing right now is this generational rift in the understanding of what diversity is what it means, what it should look like, and I think for boomers, they spent most of their lives in this, like I said, segregated society, and they had modest expectations for diversity, you know. But then Gen X, we were like, we had what I like to call authentic diversity, and we, and, and it, it was like holistic. It wasn't just about immutable characteristics; it's about mutable too. And we embraced that, and we expected it, and we wanted wanted our lives and our families and our careers, everything to reflect that. And then you get to Gen Y and Gen Z. They have no recollection of segregation, not through their parents or anyone else. They did not, you know, look, they weren't caught in this transitional period like us. And now they're just used to like, okay, diversity is just the way it's always been, and we want more of it, and it's become extreme and distorted. And that's what's happening now. There's this, we can't agree on what diversity looks like, but to your point, and I'm trying not to be biased about this, Gen X had it right. I really think we nailed it because- (laughs) we did. It's it's the balance. (laughs) No, it's the, we got the balanced diversity that sort of allows us to come together and appreciate each other and learn from each other and not alienate each other. It was authentic diversity.
0: You've reached the end of this episode of the free version of Public's podcast. To access the full version, become a paying subscriber at public.substack.com.